Thank you for joining us for another podcast from the Commonwealth Club. Hi, everybody. Welcome to today's meeting of the Commonwealth Club. You can find the Commonwealth Club on the Internet at CommonwealthClub.org. You can see our videos on YouTube, usually a day or two at most after the event, sometimes even live streamed. You can catch up with the club on Facebook and Twitter. I'm Gloria Duffy, president and CEO of the club, and I will be our moderator today. I am very pleased to introduce today's distinguished guest, Dr. Ashton B. Carter, former U.S. Secretary of Defense, currently Director of the Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, and author of the just-released book, Inside the Five-Sided Box, Lessons from a Lifetime of Leadership in the Pentagon. The Department of Defense is the largest institution in America, managing the most complex information network, carrying out more research and development than Google, Apple, and Microsoft combined, owning and operating more real estate, and spending more money than any other entity. And of course, it's responsible for the essential task of protecting our security and that of our friends and allies around the world. Secretary Carter was America's 25th Secretary of Defense, serving from 2015 to 2017 under President Obama. This was the culmination of 30 years he spent at the Defense Department in various capacities. As a dedicated educator, as well as as a leading policymaker, Dr. Carter is now sharing his extensive experience at the Defense Department, reflecting frankly on numerous cases of how he and the organization dealt with challenges ranging from cost-effective procurement to combating ISIS. We're going to talk about a number of those examples today. Secretary Carter is well known as a policy entrepreneur, who thinks outside the box to solve the most challenging problems and has pushed the Pentagon to effective new strategies and approaches. He led the creation of the military campaign and international coalition to destroy ISIS. He designed and executed the strategic pivot for the U.S. to the Asia-Pacific region. He established a new playbook for the U.S. and NATO to confront Russia's aggression and launched a national cyber strategy. Secretary Carter also spearheaded new technological capabilities and a more agile approach to the relationship between the Pentagon and the tech sector. He transformed the way the Department of Defense recruits, trains, and retains quality people, including opening all military positions to women without exception. Prior to serving as Secretary of Defense, Dr. Carter served in the number two and number three positions at the department. He was awarded the Defense Distinguished Service Medal, the department's highest civilian honor, five times. Dr. Carter holds a Ph.D. in theoretical physics from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar. He's tough and he's smart. In fact, he's the smartest person I know. Please join me in welcoming my friend and colleague, Secretary Ash Carter. So I thought I'd start us off where you started your book off, which I imagine was intentional. Can I, before you do that, just say something about your president out here? Because if you open your book and you look under Duffy in the index, you'll find mention of Gloria. And I mention that simply in gratitude of our work together and all that you did for our national security and our 
our country. And, and it is touched on in the book, and you can uh, read about it. But since she is mentioned, uh, I thought everybody here at the Commonwealth Club ought to know. Well, thank you. And I thank you for the opportunity to serve on your team doing work that I never doubted was the most important thing we could be doing at that time. So, so again, you begin your book with a discussion of the acquisition process, how the Pentagon buys technology, supplies, hardware, etc. And I think it's probably intentional that you started there, the amount of money involved and so on. You were involved in major reforms of the acquisition process. Could you start and tell us a little bit about why that focus to start off with yep. and what you did? I'm, I'm glad you noticed because I, I did start off taking you to a place that most readers probably have never been before, which is how is $750 billion spent every year? How do you buy tactical aircraft? How do you buy submarines? How do you buy spacecraft? How do you buy services? Because half of the money that we contract for is not spent on those big capital goods that you associate the things. Half of it is spent on services, mowing lawns at bases, R&D, the whole deal, which is a totally different art. And uh, the book I wanted to write was about how to run the largest organization in the world. And I wanted that to come across clearly early because there aren't many books like that. And most Pentagon things are, or DC books are who shot John kind of books. And I don't want, I would not write that kind of book for starters because I think people, if they're in a meeting in a, in a decision-making environment, don't deserve to have someone later saying who said what. Um, but secondly, because I don't remember all that stuff, uh, I didn't take notes. I was busy, and I wasn't writing a book while I was in there, so I couldn't do that in the, anyway. And I didn't want to write a book about myself because um, I'm not ready to go yet. <laughs> so I don't want <laughs> foredoom myself by writing an autobiography. Uh, so this is a different kind of book, and it's the kind of thing I like to read. I like books that take me to a place I'll, I've never been and probably never will be. So I read books about mountain climbing, for example, which I find completely unappealing. But it's fascinating. How do you, how do, you do it? How does it work? Um, and so that's why. And starting off with, in a, in a sense, the most foreign and esoteric part of it. But, of course, it's a big deal. $750 billion. It's half the U.S. federal, federal government. Um, it is a budget bigger than almost every country on earth. I think it gets up to about Sweden. Uh, roundabouts, um, has more employees than uh, Target, McDonald's, Amazon, UPS, and GE combined. Um, so it's big, the biggest enterprise on earth, and I thought I'd take you inside. And then there's a side story, which you may get to later, about how do you do that in war? Because we've been at war, we were all the time I was there, Afghanistan, Iraq, and that's uh, that's different. And it leads into things like what are we going to do about Russia and China now and technology and so on. But I wanted to start there because I wanted to say this is the kind of book this is. So when you came uh, into your role as SecDef, you found certain problems in the acquisition area, yeah. certain patterns, and you brought a, you you 
the Joint Strike Fighter was a, an example. Talk to us a little bit about that as kind of a case study of what was wrong and then what you did to try to reform the process. Well, just to take you back, you take you back to 2009, I became the undersecretary, the number three position for for uh, acquisition technology and logistics. It spends all the money, buys all the stuff, sponsors all the R&D, does all the logistics and supply chain for everywhere. Um, and the biggest program in the department was the Joint Strike Fighter. Uh, now, the F-35 is the designator, if you, those of you know it by that name. And it was an embarrassment to the department. Uh, it was running way behind schedule, way behind... Uh, way over budget and um, was and it was not only itself endangered, but I thought endangered the entire reputation of the department to be able to spend the taxpayers money. And I didn't feel I could go to I never felt as secretary of defense that I could go before the Congress and ask for the kind of money that we were asking for and that I thought we needed to protect our people. If I knew at the same time the rest of it was being wasted and, and, and if everybody else could see that or some of it was being wasted. So this was a program that was going down the reputational toilet. And that was not a good thing because three of our services depended upon it uh, for their own tactical air future. And a number of our allies did as well, whereas if we captured that market, we'd be the first with a fifth-generation tactical aircraft, and we would dominate the world market in tactical, which is a good thing for our our economy as well as our defense and our allies. Uh, So it was not a good thing to see go. And uh, 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 I had to wrestle that program to the ground in this experience explains how that was done. It involved firing the program manager, um, some major feuds with contractors and the Hill, uh, fining the contractors hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, it gets very rough when you have to do these things. And um, But you have to do what you have to do because I sit on the side of the table of the war, war fighter and the taxpayer. I understand that our industry sits on the other side. By the way, we need our industry, and we need a healthy industry. That needs to be said. That's the American way of doing things. We could do it the Soviet way, but we, but that's not the way we do it. We don't make anything at the Pentagon. We write contracts to people outside the Pentagon who execute those contracts. That's the way we – so I need them, and I need them to need the work. Uh, for me, at the same time, as I said, I'm sitting on the warfighter and the taxpayer side of the table, business table. They're sitting on their employees and shareholders, although many of them are very patriotic. Um, and so it was rough sledding for a while, and I just described the, how that was done. Now, the nub of that is that it was not by any fancy trick. It was by steady application of good acquisition tradecraft and the backing up of people who did it well it it is a is a book about management a an important thing in management is is to back up your subordinates when they do the right thing that's just as important as taking them in directions they don't want to go. Lots of books are written about that, but it's important to back people up. And I backed up people when they came under fire for doing their thing. Uh, acquisition reform, I have a 
as the book says, most acquisition reforms have been foisted upon us by Congress, this is the short version, and have been completely idiotic and counterproductive. That's the that's that story. Um, we usually know what the right thing to do is. We just don't do it, and we don't do it because the people who should do it are afraid to do it. And they don't, they're afraid to do it because they're not sure they'll get backed up. And right through from undersecretary, deputy secretary to secretary, it was important to me. When my people were taking flack, I got on the phone with the Hill and said, knock it off. They're doing exactly what you the, the, your, your fight with them is a fight with me. And I'd do that a number of times. You'd only have to do it many. And then they, um, then they fall off. So you see and saw yourself as a representative of the taxpayer throughout this role to try to make whatever the Pentagon bought as effective, cost-effective as possible. Yep, and the warfighter, because the, sec- the second chapter is about the wars. And that's a whole different deal, because that's all happening real fast. And they need something. Whatever you guys, anybody in the audience may have thought of the Iraq or Afghanistan war, that's not the point of this chapter. If you're in the position I'm in, you're all in for the troops. You have to be. They're what you, every morning you're waking up. What can I do? What can I do? What can I do? So when it comes to vehicles that save their lives, underwear I talk about that save their private parts, you know, uh, uh, new treatments for PTS, et cetera, et cetera. In, in all those things, your heart's really in it. And there, e- economy isn't the only thing we're thinking of. And so we paid a premium to have things fast. No apologies. Mm-hmm. So you didn't want to write a book about yourself, but let's talk about you just a little bit. A theme here, as obviously is true of your career, is a scientist in the Pentagon. So you're a theoretical physicist, although as an undergraduate, you also studied medieval history. Can you talk about how you studied those two things? Yeah, some of you may have had that same experience. It was a right brain, left brain thing. There was no union there, although the standard joke in my later life was that you you found, Ash, the perfect union of your medieval training and your technical training. You're the Secretary of Defense. Um, But... (laughs) Uh, it was two different ways of thinking. I'm grateful that I had both. I needed both. I used both. Uh, but it was through physics that I got into defense in the first place. And there by hangs a tale, if I can. It's relevant Please. today, which is that the people who brought me up in physics were um, the Manhattan Project generation peep type people. And their view was that with Technical knowledge also came responsibility. And I mentioned that because that was lost in tech for a generation, that impulse. And it, it's coming back now, which I think is a good thing. But they they never they, – they always said, Ash, you have a responsibility. And I didn't really know what that meant. And one day, some of them whom you would know, one of them in particular you do know, um, said to me, Ash, we need you to go to Washington for just one year to work on a something of great importance and it requires a good technical know-how and so you, you got to go do this and I get and that was my first taste and it was important because I had I it was an issue of great consequence and it turns out I could see how what, what I knew made a difference in the room in which decisions were made and if you're 20 
five years old, that's pretty cool. I made a difference. Issue makes a difference. What could be more, you know, sort of intoxicating to a young person? And that's, that's, that's a very good combination, a very noble one, and one we want to instill in young people today. So that's how I got into it. And um, uh, uh, it, I, it, it also gave me a respect for the truth and for sticking up for people who tell the truth and, and all that stuff as well, which which was much more widespread then, unfortunately, than it is today. So you worked on a couple of uh, uh, military issues based in science early in your career, the MX basing study and an SDI Star Wars analysis. And then ultimately the Nunn-Lugar program, that's which you true. and I worked that's on. That's true. You, you, in fact, designed the concept for the Nunn-Lugar program. And just to cut to the chase, if you haven't read it yet, Gloria and I worked on that, and people don't pay any attention to successes in history. But if you look back and remember how concerned we all were in the early 90s that for the first time in history a, a nuclear state had disintegrated um, and it all turned out fine but it all turned out that fine because we we worked really hard on it, and, and and when I was then an assistant secretary of defense, and I looked, and one of my offices was responsible for the former Soviet Union, and I looked around and I said, "Okay, who can who now the Soviet Union is gone? Whom we how can we approach this problem of nuclear weapons strewn all over the former Soviet Union and making sure that stuff there's essentially a civil war going on in the country or." And we had people who knew how to target them, and we knew people had to conduct arms control negotiations with them, but we didn't have anybody who knew how to do this new thing. And Gloria Duffy came on board to do the new thing, and she did, and she spent more time with Russian, Kazakh, Ukrainian, Belarusian generals and stuff than uh, anybody else in the department. She deserves a great... uh, a lot of a lot of gratitude, and again, things that turn out well. There's no reason why that should have turned out well. We got off really light at the end of the Cold War in that sense, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't, by the way, our doing either. It was really the doing of the Soviet former Soviet stewards. A lot of respect to those people. They behaved incredibly professionally when their whole country was falling apart around them, and everything they had ever believed and stood for was going down the drain, and they. They stayed true. It's a pretty big statement. But back to those early studies for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, they were very important in establishing your credibility. And you had some experiences where <laughs> you took bold positions yeah. on technical issues and you were attacked and you proved, you know, so tell us about those. I was too dumb to know the difference. And I told the truth without really knowing what I was getting into. And the biggie was I had had worked uh, after the first thing I did for Casper Weinberger in the Office of the Secretary of Defense. Uh, it was my very first job, 1981. And he was, of course, Ronald Reagan, Secretary of Defense. And I was working on uh, Cold War-type things because that was the big issue of the day uh, for Weinberger. And then uh, after I left and was at MIT and was a postdoc, I was asked to do a study 
on Star Wars, the, the Star Wars concept that you could use chemical lasers or excimer lasers or free electron lasers or x-ray lasers or neutral particle beams on battle stations in the sky shine down on a, a Soviet ballistic missiles that made its way to the United States and thereby defend the United States. It's surely an attractive idea. And so I studied it and it was not even close. And I'm, by the way, even as we sit here today, isn't close. Um, 40 years later. Um, but at any rate, and I said this, and uh, in a, a report that was based upon full access to classified information, but was itself unclassified, so it became public. At exactly the same time that President Ronald Reagan went out in front of the TV cameras one night and said that he that this was our highest priority, that he was going to render nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete with a system of that kind. And I found myself in the middle of a, a firestorm because I had told the truth in defiance of the president of the United States, and I didn't realize how dangerous that could be. And whoa, was it scary for, I mean, I was very, quite junior and I had no idea what I'd got myself into it. I thought, okay, that's the NDU Carter. <laughs> and it wasn't. And it wasn't because people stuck up for me. People, senior people, for example, a panel was appointed of the chairman of which was Charlie Towns, discoverer of the laser, close friend of Ronald Reagan. And Charlie and Bill Perry, later Secretary of Defense, my friend from this area, and a retired uh, Air Force general, really smart guy named Glenn Kent, Glenn Kent, they were appointed to you know look at this Carter paper and tell us, is this guy full of it or not? And they wrote right back very sharply to my former boss, Cosper Weinberg, and said, lay off him. And I'll never forget that. And I said, wow, there really is truth. And I'm sure there was some, I didn't know this at the time, but there was some risk to them for doing that. And it really taught me. And that was much more common then. And then I was hired by Paul Nitze, Arch, after this, after I I said something that defied his boss. He was Ronald Reagan's Topps Arms Control advisor and negotiator. And he hires me to advise him about the very same subject. That's the way things were done back then. He didn't get trouble for it. I didn't get any trouble for it. And life goes life goes on. And it, it's it's a it's a time you look back on now and you say, Well, I hope I always behave like that. But I look around and I'm not sure everybody else is. We'll get up to the present moment in a little bit. Um there's so many things we could talk about here, and I also have some questions for the audience from the audience. Um you worked with two presidents closely. You worked under a number of presidents, but President Clinton and President Obama. Closely, yeah. Yeah. You couldn't and, help but work closely with yeah. Bill Clinton. So say a little bit about how you worked with each of them, different styles. They're uh, to- totally different people. All five of them are totally different figures, I, 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 I think, but, but all wonderful in their own way and people that you could be proud or were your president and tell your kids that's president. Um, so Bill, Bill Clinton, I tell a story in there that uh, of 
being at a summit in the Kremlin once with Bill Clinton and um, uh, Boris Yeltsin and he are meeting and first we're sitting in uh, on rows on opposite sides of a table and we're all talking. And um, I am, have tried to get Clinton and eventually successfully to uh, the view that we should get the Russians into the uh, peacekeeping force in Kosovo because it was better for them to be, as the expression goes, inside the tent than outside the tent. But that was hard because it would require them to work with NATO and so and then so. So and Clinton said, okay, he tried to work with on Yeltsin on that. So they then the the big meeting ends and the two of them disappear behind those big white doors you see in those pictures of the Kremlin and tall, skinny white doors. He and Yeltsin go through and a little while later they come out again. And I'm standing out in the outside kind of hanging out with Warren Christopher as the Secretary of State and Leon Panetta, who was then the White House Chief of Staff. And uh, we're kind of shooting the br- shooting breeze out there, waiting, milling around with some r- low-level Russians who include Bo- um, Vladimir Putin. <laughs> and uh, out comes Bill Clinton, strides out, walks right over to me, puts his arm around me and says, Ash, I just couldn't get it. And I'm thinking, here's the president of the United States who knows my heart's in this thing. And he's coming over because he thinks I'll be upset at not having this thing. I thought this guy, that's Bill Clinton. I mean, the guy's just such an amazing politician that he'd remember me. I'm an assistant secretary of defense. I've, you know, there aren't that many of them, but there are a lot of assistant secretaries around Washington. Um, and that's Bill Clinton. Um, Obama equally uh, you know, I remember Perry always used to tell me he'd come back from a meeting with Clinton and say the priest, the damn it, he's the best prepared person in the room. Um, you know, Clinton had was intellectually w- well up to the task. Uh, uh, Obama also. Um, Obama not nearly as warm a personality, mm-hmm. but highly courteous. Mm-hmm. Um, Obama never took offense at being pressed uh, and he'd listen to people. I mean, I would attend NSC meetings and I said, I know so-and-so around the tables or me is going to say something you don't, you're not going to like, or you're, at least you're not going to agree. And, and, and he'd listen. And sometimes I was exasperated by those same people. And I said, you know, God, how wrong is that? Are you really going to say that to him? And, and I'm just like, oh, it's 7 o'clock, I want to go home, I'm hungry. And <laughs> Why are you listening to this guy? And he's so, he, he, he was so courteous. He was demanding. He was demanding. Other secretaries have talked about being micromanaged by him. And I say in the book, mm-hmm. I didn't, I was not. I don't mm-hmm. I don't know what the, I'm not going to speak for their experience, but I micromanaged myself. I, I didn't he would if he thought that you hadn't done your homework. He felt he had to do it, do it himself, but I thought that was completely unfair to him. So I listened to it and I thought I, I need to when I go over to him with a proposal, let's say for an airstrike or a hostage rescue or another op or 
or whatever, the ISIS campaign plan or something. Um, I, I want him to have confidence in it. The guy's got a lot of things to do. I'm supposed to do that work for him. He has to believe that I'm looking at it through his eyes as thoroughly as he would. And so in that sense, he was demanding and he, and, and he could be impatient if you weren't up to task. And I tried to not to be on the south side of that impatience. I was one or two times, <laughs> but I've seen foreign leaders. You know, he didn't have the soft touch that, that Bush one had mm-hmm. with foreign leaders. I mean, they loved him. It, it, Obama didn't have, it had that, but part of it was he didn't suffer fools well. And, and you know, some fraction of world leaders are fools. And, <laughs> and I, sometimes I saw him light into somebody. So he, he was a tough, rigorous, uh, rigorous, I think a thoroughly decent, you know, had those, those daughters of his. If you've ever had the opportunity to meet them, I mean, they would be at various events in the White House. You go to a state dinner and you go through the line and we talk, talk to his daughters and they're like unbelievable kids. And growing up in this madhouse of an environment and they, as two parents, they really get a lot of respect for me, from me because they, I mean, they worked at raising those girls well under those circumstances, and that gets a. And you uh, met one-on-one with President Obama. How often? Uh, every week, nominally. It didn't work out that way. We had the one-on-ones um, because I was traveling or he was traveling. So this is maybe three times a month. Um, and then I always took Joe Dunford with me, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, or Mark, before that, Marty Dempsey. Because I, Marty and I, and 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 Joe and I got together. I always, if so, on the rare occasions where we disagreed on things, I wanted the president to hear from his senior military advisor and have the advantage of uh, sort of parallax uh, on the issue. And uh, and and usually not always the national security advisor would attend. So anyway. But it's us, and and I'd go ahead. and that was the time when you could really, um, you know, get him thinking about things and have a real conversation without all these people. And the, the sit room is is this quite a small room, but it, there are too many people in it, in my opinion. Cricket. <laughs> Cr- cricket means. China, Russia, Iran, Korea, terrorism, which is so which is like the big the, five the, they're, it's the big five. And uh, people used to say, you know, what and in particular in my department, which needs clarity, it needs consistency. Where are we going? What are we doing? And a lot of strategy is written in ter- in these abstract terms about competitors, peer competitors, possible enemies. And I always thought I needed our people to work on the things that were the big ticket things, and we needed war plans and for the for the big things. Um, we needed um, a deployment and employment orders that went with them. Uh, we needed to resource with intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance right through to ships and uh, ship numbers and where we placed um, uh, tactical 
fighters and where we and so forth. And I, so I used to tell people that let's just cut through the crap here. It's China, Russia, Iran, Korea, and terrorism. And let's not attribute a lot of names to it. And I just, that was just my, my sort of boneheaded way of giving direction for the here and now of there's a netherhold agenda, which is tomorrow. But if you're the Secretary of Defense of today and tomorrow, for today, that's the big five. They're the things we need to deter or, if necessary, defeat and need to be ready to do it. So let's just be ready to do it. Well, I just thought I didn't think of those terms. And, and, and I heard started to hear the word cricket around. And finally, I said to my senior military assistant, hey, what is everybody talking about crickets? And they said, oh, that's your strategy. <laughs> and I said, I said oh, my God. So I, I, Everything so, has to have an so, acronym so in the Pentagon. So common sense becomes strategy. And in the Pentagon, strategy becomes an acronym. You are listening to the Commonwealth Club of California. Hear thousands of our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. And when you're in the Bay Area, please join us live for one of our 500 programs each year. You can find us online at CommonwealthClub.org. Now, back to our program. I thought your observation was interesting that at the end of the Cold War, we corrected our strategy to focus on non-state actors, terrorism, and you feel we overcorrected. Mm. And uh, now we're back to really looking at some major state threats, as reflected in cricket. Yeah, um, it 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 was an overcorrection that lasted a little too long. Um, so divided into two pieces uh, temporarily. In the 1990s, uh, Gloria, and you and I were working together then, the Soviet Union was gone. Um, We didn't know whether it was going to get ugly in a chaotic way, Um, but we weren't worried about it as a coherent military power. Chinese were weak, and we still had the hope that they might turn out okay. Um, and so, you know, the things of the decade were Rwanda, Kosovo, and so forth. And that was what all the discussion, uh, Somalia, uh, things, relatively small things by the big power war standards. Then came the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, similarly compelling, at this time counterterrorism, counterinsurgency, not the same as peacekeeping, um, but – and – challenging in their own ways and we worked hard to get on top of the peculiar issues to and i think successfully in in both of those cases but by let's say the time i was undersecretary so 20 2009 i believed that well we were still we, were, we, we i was carrying out the afghan surge building 258 bases in the summer of 2010 in Afghanistan. So it wasn't like we were not doing things. But I could tell both Russia and China hadn't turned out the way we'd hoped. Putin was in Russia. China was becoming what it is now, surely, which is a communist dictatorship. And um, we'd moved from Jiang Zemin to Hu Jintao to Xi Jinping, and I knew all of them, and this was not a good path. And so we needed to 
master the lessons of counterinsurgency and counterterrorism, but also get get back to the big power stuff. And that is why, you know, I mean, everything from, from starting the, a new st- stealth bomber, the B-21, which is really about China, um, and that was a stretch in 2010. A lot of people didn't want to say that about China. Uh, now it's more widespread, uh, the view that China is a problem. It's not to say I want to have a war with China or even a cold war with China, but you've got to be realistic about what you're dealing with. And you don't get peace for free. You have to think about what you're doing. So we do need to. So anyway, so we we have been in various ways doing that. First in the Defense Department, I would say, before the economics people, we still don't have an economics playbook mm. for China. I mean, look at us. We're kind of groping, I would say, is a, is a good word. Um, so I think we got, we got there first with what President Obama called the rebalance to the Asia Pacific. It has to be one of the worst words ever chosen for something. Um, but at any rate, uh, and so we were there first in defense, and now I think the rest of the country is getting there. Uh, fair enough, but it's a little late in the game. So there are some questions from the audience about things that surprised you and were unexpected at DOD. I think it was when you were undersecretary or possibly deputy secretary, you gave a talk down at Stanford and I remember coming into the room and there was a slide of a dog on the uh, screen and um, you you talked about one of the things that surprised you was having to procure dogs and dog food and uh, for the work of these dogs in detecting IEDs. Yeah, I mean, one day it's a joint strike fighter or an aircraft carrier and the next day dogs. And why? The reason was that particularly in Afghanistan where the terrain is 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 different and we were doing dismounted patrols that is foot patrols uh out in uh fields and among uh, in in between culottes and so forth which are the mud huts in afghanistan we were getting a lot of uh, ied injuries from ieds that were buried and that were detonated either with a pressure plate detonator or a command wire, uh, or a remote cell phone uh, triggering the detonation. And um, there are things you can do about each of those three triggering mechanisms, but the best thing, best tool we had was the nose of a dog. Why is that? It's because the, they, these things were made of homemade explosive ammonium nitrate, a fertilizer. Fertilizer comes from or resembles chemically you know what. What do dogs smell, <laughs> you know, exquisitely well, you know what. Um, and so the dog remains the detector par excellence. Um, for uh, IEDs. And we needed lots, so I need lots and lots. So I began to learn about dogs. First of all, what kind of dogs make the best breeds for this off-leash search function, which is different from the beagles you see at the airport who are there, they're, they're comfortable as a species with a confined space and an assigned mission. Here you're asking an animal to go out 
walk the path ahead of a patrol, sniff around, and then when they detect an IED, exhibit some characteristic behavior, and they all do something different. But some will circle around, some will sit, some they'll do something which will indicate that they believe there's something in the ground there. And um, so we had to source dogs uh, in large numbers. And then there are all kinds of issues that come with uh, veterinary support. You, now we have to have doctors, we have to have vets. On the battlefield, dogs get PTS, uh, the whole deal. And really, really poignantly and beautifully establish a relationship between soldier or Marine and dog, which is, um, I mean, these these kids love these dogs. And I, I tell a few stories in there about these these, in fact, it's very, you cannot separate the dog. Mm-hmm. It's a problem because if the dog gets wounded or and you need to euthanize the dog. I mean, it becomes a real big deal for the, these the whole the whole unit, the whole squad, whatever, loves this dog. Other than the prevalence of dogs, what else really surprised you? What was sort of uh, that you had never expected to undertake as Secretary the, of Defense. The, the, the thing that where I had to learn the most, let me put it that way, was personnel management. And so let me give you a few little mm-hmm. puzzles along, along the way. Um, a disproportionate fraction, Gloria, of our recruits come from only six states. And there are a number of reasons for that, and I won't go into what they are. But what that tells me is that we are inadequately penetrating 44 states. So what do you do about that? How do you get the coaches, the clerics, the principals, the teachers, the guidance counselors, the people who draw kids in? That's at the recruiting end. Um, and then what do you – you know, there are tattoos, these kids – Tattoos, obesity, mm-hmm. and there are all kinds of things that have to do with this generation of Americans and and so forth. And so that's a very complicated world. It's incredibly important. Um, veterans hiring what turned around completely. The attitude towards veterans turned around completely in my lifetime. And had I been Secretary of Defense during Vietnam, I do not know what I would have done. I couldn't have stood to see our people treated that way. And our people now, you know, they board the airplane first and and and, and so forth. Um, and uh, when I started asking employers 10 years ago now to hire veterans, they'd say, well, all right, you know, we're doing a favor for the country. And they'd put a little ad that says we're hiring so many veterans, aren't we good – Citizens, And then they realize that our veterans are fantastic employees. They're disciplined. They get their butts out of bed in the morning. They go to work. They can lead. I mean, they're really, really good. Then as the, as the decade went on, I began to experience, and I changed jobs. And I, I began to experience the other part of the problem was they started hiring good people away from me. Um, and uh, just, just like around so, here. So, uh, and then there are all kinds of issues like how do we get tech talent? What did I do about women in service? You described that. It may seem like a no-brainer to people, but it wasn't a no-brainer. Um, and it wasn't a no-brainer to pull it off because we screwed up things like that before. 
and you need to have done your homework and be able to convince people. And you, if I had screwed that up, it, I would have screwed it up for a generation. You're speaking of the decision to, to admit, let women, oh, women play to all, all roles. Women were not allowed. It. There were 220,000 positions uh, that were still closed to women. Uh, when I became secretary and I decided that all of them should become open to women. And that's not just something you decide with them by waving a magic wand. You, first of all, you have to say why and has that, is there anything wrong with this decision? And you, you have to do the work. Then you have to make sure that you can bring that enough people will get it that you don't get thwarted, in which case you have caused yourself the department women in service and everything, 20 years or something. You have to wait. It's how long it takes these things to come around again in in Washington. Um, and that was a lot of work. That's a lot of, of really hard work because it's not enough that you understand it. You know, we, we, we recruit kids, right? And some kids are from a background where it is extremely hard for them to deal with that. And so... I'm not going to throw them out either. And so, but then I need to figure out how am I going to deal with this in barracks and bathrooms, on battlefields, on submarines. It's not trivial. So tell us what the approach was. How did it succeed? Has it succeeded? It certainly has succeeded. I always was confident that it would, but that we had a lot of work to do in execution. Um, the, uh, the, the way I did it was, first of all, to make sure that we had done our homework. And so we, I asked the secretaries of the three armed services, Army, Navy, and uh, Air Force, the Joint Chiefs of Staff each, the Chiefs of the Major Services, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and the, and the Commander of Special Operations Command, to come to me each individually um, with any exceptions that they continued exceptions that they wished to have uh, and their rationale for it. And I got, you know, what uh, nine big binders like this, which I would take home or on an airplane and, and read and try to, and we did surveys, we did studies, did um, uh, physical and emotional uh, uh, stories of, uh, or um, studies, gender, gender on gender, looked at things like SWAT teams and astronauts where you had mixed gender in close proximity for long periods of time um, and so forth and accumulated a lot of information. And seven of the eight responses came back to me saying, that they had no problem and they didn't, were not going to request any further exceptions. One came back to me, which was from the Commandant of the Marine Corps, requesting some, some continued exceptions. Um, and um, uh, so that was pretty clear advice, except with one exception. Um, and interestingly, that individual, I then went to President who, who, who President Obama and recommended become the Joint Chiefs Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Joe Dunford. He was Commandant who sent me that. And notwithstanding that, I mean, I 
So, but I knew that then, then there was going to be an issue because the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the Secretary of Defense were disagreeing about this in the Marine Corps. So I had to deal with that situation. I won't bother explaining how I did it. Then I had a, a, a potential issue with the President of the United States, not with him, but with his staff, because I didn't want the White House to have anything to do with this, because I, I thought that would only screw it up. Well, just in the sense that that I don't need anybody making a political thing out of this. This is a talent management thing. I got an all volunteer force. I got to compete for talent. Women are half the population. I can't afford to take half the population off the table when I'm competing for talent. It's that's not a that's a military decision. I want to announce a military decision. I don't want some twerp in the White House, and there are plenty of them there, uh, always, uh, uh, you, know, say, you know, trying to get political credit for it. I don't need that. Well, one remembers the don't ask, don't tell. Yeah, yeah. You, you know, that becomes a storm. You know, think about it. Think about it from a, a young female service member's point of view. Do you really need that kind of crap? You just want to do your job. These, 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 these people just want to do their job, and they just want to be treated professionally. They don't want to be made a circus of. And then think of it from any other point of view. And it, it make a bigger mess for me. And Obama, so I kept it from Obama, and, but he was completely understanding. Uh, and I respect that. By the way, when I did the competition for the tanker between Boeing and Airbus, which is a huge thing, ads are running in the on morning radio in Washington as though, as though the acquisition executives is going to make, is going to get pressured into making a source selection decision one way or another. What do they think we do? This in Guata, I don't even want to criticize a country. I compare. I, so we, that's not how I make source selection decisions. And to the, his great credit, neither he nor then my boss, Bob Gates, wanted to know who won. I knew who won. And they didn't ask me who won, let alone because they didn't. They knew that it was better. You're spending $750 billion a year taxpayers' money. It's supposed to be done by free, fair, and open competition period. I run free, fair, and open competitions, period. Who's going to win? The best guy's going to win. And none of your business. I don't need your help, and you don't need, I don't need you to know. And they respected that. I thought it was great. So some questions from our audience. Uh, Our good friend and colleague, Bill Perry, uh, he has uh, a book and a film, His Nuclear Nightmare. and Huge influence on me, by the way. Yes. Um, and me too. Mm-hmm. Um, one person here wants to know, uh, referring to Bill's book, My Journey on the Nuclear Brink, he argues that the only safe path is to abolish nuclear weapons. Is this possible in your view, and how could it be achieved? It's, it's certainly desirable. I have never said that myself because I don't know how to do it. Um, I, I, and I, I think it is imprudent for us to, for moreover, to speak that way, because I think it only frizzes up the ends of the spectrum against the middle. Uh, it frizzes up those who say, well, you know, we're, we're 
abandoning nuclear weapons. We're going to be, you know, we need to do more and also frizzes up the people who want to do unilateral disarmament. And I don't need help from either of them. That's not where sense lies in my personal view. So it only stirs up the ends against the middle, and that's not the that's not the kind of dynamic we need in something as serious as nuclear weapons. Um, and it also suggests, I think unwisely, or could suggest, and this isn't about Bill. Bill understands these things entirely, and you'd have to ask him what he means. He's positing an end goal. Yeah, yeah, I'd, lo- I'd like that too. Um, at the moment, we need to recapitalize the nuclear triad, which we, which uh, we might have done in the '90s or the decade thereafter, but we didn't, for the reasons we've talked about, focused on other things. But we need to do it now, and I know that's not popular, um, but we need to do it. And I think that uh, this uh, suggests in mirage form that there's an alternative that there is not, in my judgment. What should or could we do more to help our veterans and military families? Um, The main thing that we're is something we're doing already, which is showing them the respect of their society and as I, that's that's been a huge thing and that's just that's i've that's happened in my lifetime and i can't tell you how much they value that um there are people like everything else they always you know when i'd go to a base they'd ask me about the child care center the pay uh, basic allowance for housing, medical care. How come I can't get a place to clinic? How come the copay is this? And I mean, you get that whole thing at a troop talk. You know, they, they, some of them are asking you about World War Three and Russians and the Chinese, and other ones are asking you the details of their pay, and their spouses are asking you this this kind of stuff. So a lot is it about uh, uh, welfare. The um, if I can broaden it slightly. When I talked to troops, I always told them two things. The f- and because it when it was because it wasn't just them; it was their families as well. Remember, you, all this stuff is now streamed home, and mom is watching, and and w- wife or husband are watching, and maybe kids if they're old enough are are, are watching. And so I was always careful to. Tell and, and some of these people are quite young. You, they 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 have never heard anybody tell them why the hell they're doing what they're doing. So if they're out in a ship in the South China Sea, or they're up in Poland in a armored brigade combat team uh, or something, you need to go there. And the first thing you need to tell them in a language that an eighteen-year-old can understand why the heck they're there. What do they, what does it mean? What's the point? Why is it good? Uh, why does it help protect their country? And the other thing you need to tell them is how noble is the calling that they have answered. Um, and because mission, you know, we don't pay what other people pay. We put people at, in risk. And so as an employer, you don't have a lot to play with as a secretary of defense. But the one thing I have is mission. I have the 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 what I believe is the most noble mission 
of all, which is to provide people with security without which none of the other good things in life can be had. Joe Biden, longtime friend and colleague. He is. Yeah. Um, out there now as a potential front runner mm-hmm. for president. Comments, thoughts. Would he be a I good have president? No comments on him in this election for two reasons. First of all, I have a policy of not having any views on those things. That was true. Now I'm not Secretary of Defense anymore. So you say, well, you're kind of let off the hook, but not really because people still look. And I was, I was, I was and I talk about this in the book. I was uh, a stickler for, for a politicization. So I, you never heard a thing out of my mouth or any of my generals or admirals mouths in the 2016 election and believe me that's not an accident i sat on myself and i sat on everybody else and i said you shut up if a question is asked in those terms you say i'm not answering it and i did you do that three times with the press and they're finally their producers give up and you do it three times in front of a committee and then they realize they're going to lose their question um, because they're just going to get wasted, and I'm going to jam. I'm going to jam them mm-hmm. with a political. You know, a, a you shouldn't have asked me that speech, and it's the, they can't send that home. Um, you do that three times, and they 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 quit. And I do not do campaigns. Mm-hmm. I don't. I never have. I have no desire to. I'm not going to be part of this election. I'll think. What do I know about that? I know about national defense. I don't know how to, anything about. What about I, Joe Biden? So Joe, but Joe Biden is a expertise. wonderful, great guy. He's a great guy. Um, he's just a very, very, very nice man. And the reason I've known him for a long time is that my wife used to live in Baltimore. This is now before I was in this last administration. Biden and Biden would ride up to Delaware, and we would take. So I would we would be on Amtrak frequently. At the same time, that's how I happen to know him. And his, he's a wonderful man. And his wife is a wonderful person. And uh, he was an incredibly gracious man as vice president. And I have only good things to say about him. Um, so um, one person wants to know, with the current president's penchant for dismantling programs and policies put in place during the Obama administration, what, if any, of your DOD accomplishments are being dismantled or ignored or still doing well? Yeah, well, I, it, I, this is not confined to the Trump administration. This is a dynamic that we unfortunately have every time. In my observation, the first thought, thought thing was it was 1981 as the first administration for which I worked took over from the the, the Reagan from Carter administration. I remember quite clearly because it was discussed that, well, we can't do that because the other guys did that and they did that. So we got to do the opposite of that, which is not an argument on the merits. Um, and so it happens again and again and again, and it happens with it. And, 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 and so you see things like TPP and, the Iran nuclear deal, which I thought were pluses, not minuses, treated as minuses um, and, um, you know, removed, I think, something I would not have advised. Um, and again, that is typical um, in the defense area. Um, uh, and then I'll say something that I don't think is quite typical, but in the defense area, 
not as much of that occurred because I was followed by somebody who in many ways I would have, let me put it this way, Jim Mattis, I'm talking about, Jim and I are old friends, so first of all, you need to understand that. And he and I, you probably remember this also, he was the junior military assistant in the front office when I was assistant secretary of defense, and he and I would sleep on the floor of the secretary of defense's plane as the secretary of defense traveled around. So I've known Jim since he was a major. And and I, when I was leaving office, people would say as I was going out the door, you know, what do you think that that the things you started will be continued? And my standard answer was this is a place where things that make sense are continued. And that's pretty much the in defense. Now that isn't, I can't speak for the future, but it's a pretty sensible place. And typically we do our homework. And so there's an established body of thought behind decisions we've taken. And people don't just throw all that overboard. Um, What I was going to say is, is different is, and I hope this doesn't happen in defense, but you got to be careful about a certain kind of change, which is a poli- is an apology change, but an institutional change. Because things that take a whole lot of time to build are really easy to tear apart and tear apart quickly. And that's 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 more than a four or eight year deal. You're doing a you're you're not just taking out your revenge on the people who came immediately before and you're taking it out on people including who may have been of your own political persuasion decades before who built that thing and that's overweening arrogance i think i I don't like to see that you um We started out talking about the search for truth and how important that was and having that reinforced early in your career. These days, the Trump administration, any thoughts? Well, um, uh, yeah, it's it's uh, let me a couple of thoughts. One is this has been getting worse and worse, I think, over time, just in general. I found it difficult to communicate to the press sometimes, not because I didn't, they weren't capable people, but they were under unreasonable pressure. And they would ask questions that were not, you know, we, we were traveling to Erbil, where U.S. troops were at war against an enemy that was from crucifying people for Christ's sake. Um, I shouldn't use that expression, but, um, and, uh, uh, and they're asking me dumbbell Washington questions because their editors or producers back home are pushing them to get a headline. And that's really irritating. Good people behaving badly. At the same time, I hasten to say there were lots of people who were overwhelmingly dedicated to doing the right thing and who had embedded with our forces and were, were and knew the department incredibly well and were perfectly happy to tattle on me if I was doing the wrong thing, which is exactly what their job is. So I didn't have any problem, problem with that. But you saw that pressure. Um, I'll just contrast two people. 
the joke in Washington was always about Obama, that Obama's policy was better than it sounded. And there was something to that because he was not a great spokesman for his policy. He was a great spokesman in general. For some reason, when it came to defense and foreign policy, it wasn't his thing. And so I ended up feeling that most of the time when I was speaking, the words I didn't I couldn't there was nothing of his I could borrow and I would have to do it myself. Um, And uh, so he spoke too little. Now we have a president who speaks a, a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. And there the, you know, clarity and consistency are what get you weight mm-hmm. in international affairs, at least. And if you lose clarity and consistency, you're just, you're losing oomph. And you don't make up oomph with bluster. It doesn't really occur after a while. Bluster is just regarded as bluster and isn't real weight. So we and we need real weight in these in these issues. So I I, I worry about that. You know, um, uh, a really good communicator was George Bush one. Oh, by the way, I mean Reagan was a superbly mm-hmm. good communicator. Um, and so and it does matter. I mean, it's not way up there in, in a president's mm-hmm. attributes, mm-hmm. in my view. Um, but it's 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 an important attribute. But it's hard to do that now in today's world because they're after little things that will make the news tonight. And you could be talking about, you know, the destiny of humankind, and they're still going to ask you about some little thing. If you could, and we're at the point of our last question. I, okay. I would be delighted to do this for much longer. I, me too. Me too. It's a lot of fun. It is. Um, if you could point out one threat, one concern, one warning uh, to the group here in San Francisco that concerns you as a scientist, a defense policy expert, longtime former defense leader, what would that be? It's clear, may surprise you, it's not one of the five. I am confident in all. I don't love all of those situations, but if any of those four that are nation states start something, we will win. I'm confident of that. I don't want that, but I'm confident of the outcome. Um, and as far as terrorism is concerned, we're, we're pretty good. Um, I, I, don't, I don't like where we are in the political and economic aftermath of the ISIS campaign. I always told people I, we're, we're absolutely to- going to destroy the fact and the idea of an Islamic state based upon that ideology. I'm confident of it. I had a plan to do that. That was basically over by the time I left office. We're going to be a few stragglers down into the lower Euphrates Valley, and we go down there and either kill them there or that. Anyway, that would be the end. I was always confident in that. Uh, and if they do come back a little bit in patches here and there, we'll just have to go get them again. And uh, so I'm confident in those things. It's the future where I think it's not that I lack confidence, it's that I think we have to have resolve and determination. Um, And that is with respect, not just to those countries, but with respect to cyber, with respect to space, with respect to the line between war and peace, which has gotten increasingly wide and increasingly gray. And the greatest practitioner of this is Vladimir Putin, um, who tries to widen that 
gray area so that we're, we're not sure whether we've been attacked or not. And, that you know, the number of people ask me whether we've been attacked or whether somebody attacks us with cyber, is that an attack or not? And I always go, well, you just used the word. Who do you think it is? If somebody attacks my people and I'm Secretary of Defense, that's an attack, and I don't care how the hell you did it. And I, the example I always use is to say that people attacked us by flying airplanes into our buildings, and we didn't respond by flying airplanes into their buildings. We responded any which way we wanted to, uh, to defeat them. And uh, so we have a lot to do in the way of keeping up with technology and also keeping up with uh, the ingenuity of evil uh, so that we can continue to protect our people physically, but also protect the way of life that we enjoy. That's more challenging to me. Um, But I what makes me feel really good uh, about the future is the troops. I mean, young people are, if you, if anytime you want to be, you're in despair, go out and be with you. That's why I like being at a university now. I always felt that way about the troops. When I was sick of Washington, you can go out and be with the troops. Renews you. So I just wanted to say one last thing to the discussion about uh, equalizing women's access to all jobs in the Pentagon, in the military. If I recall correctly, when I worked for you, you had five deputies, of which three were women and two were men. So I say that that's something you've been living yourself, uh, that e- approach of equity. Four out of well, six, Dasties, of which you were one, six, yes. Yeah. Um, and I guess I didn't think about it until a number of people have read the book and have noted that. Mm-hmm. And... At the time, these were just the most qualified people, and I was so desperate for good people who could do novel things. Um, and Gloria was creative enough to be able to give a, 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 a football with no playbook <laughs> to. And the football is make sure this thing with the Soviet Union, but I don't have any – we've never done this before and to reason her way through it. And you're right. Four out of six of them were female. And that was novel at that time. It is a lot less novel. Now I'm happy to say, and I'm happy to say on behalf of the country, not just on behalf of people who care about women's rights, because, uh, because it means that we've got, I, I can't say this enough. It's another half of the population, which is actively involved in our public life and advancing our future. How can that be bad? We are at the end of our time, unfortunately. So our thanks to Dr. Ash Carter, former U.S. Secretary of Defense. Thank you all very much. Thank you for coming on a Saturday. Appreciate it. We don't just thank you for being here. We thank you for your service. We thank our audiences here and on the radio, television, and the Internet. We want to remind everybody that signed copies of Dr. Carter's book are on sale outside the room. I'm Gloria Duffy. Now this meeting of the Commonwealth Club is adjourned.